AHLA is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 health law issues of 2022, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA and this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Hi, this is Lori Foley with PYA. I lead our compliance service line and I'm the managing principal of the Atlanta office here. And I'm excited to be joined by Shaylin McKitt today. Shaylin, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Shayla McKitt. I'm an associate at Boston Bingham LLP out of our Birmingham, Alabama office. Um, before coming to Balt, I actually had a background in health law where I was an assistant attorney general for the state of Ohio, working on our health and human services section. Then I went to the United States Department of Health and Human Services, where I was assistant regional counsel out of the Dallas, Texas office in Region 6. Um, I also have worked in-house um, at a healthcare technology company. So I've got a few years of experience dealing with health law and health law related issues. Perfect. I'm excited to be here with you today. I have a certification in human resources and it, I have found it just um, permeates all that we do within healthcare. Um, you know, we live in such a highly regulated environment from a healthcare perspective and then you labor, you layer labor law on top of it and it just um it just creates some unique dynamics that you i know have to assist clients with and our clients deal with on a regular basis um we are spending time today talking about healthcare workforce employment law issues and i know one of the key issues in the forefront of everyone in the healthcare environment whether they are sitting in the hr seat or just working with um associates and professional staff throughout a hospital facility or a healthcare facility is the vaccine mandate. Uh, as we were talking, um, the Supreme Court did you a favor, I think. They, they came down and were able to give an opinion um, or a ruling last week right before we were sitting down to have this conversation in an area that's in the forefront of everyone in healthcare related to that. So what were, what were some key takeaways that you uh, discerned from the Supreme Court's decisions related to the vaccine mandate. Right. Yeah. So I'd say that first off, um, anyone who has a chance to read the article I wrote um, that was published at the beginning of the year uh, will see that for the first time in my life, I think I was probably spot on knowing <laughs> that something was going to happen. Um, but I think we all did. Um, there was a lot of litigation surrounding the idea of vaccine mandates. And at the time, President Biden had had in, um, in place his own order requiring certain um, um, mandates for testing and or for vaccination. And so um, very true to the point, the Supreme Court on, I believe the 13th of this month of January, um, came down with an opinion that has left us, I believe, with slightly more guidance, but also with much more confusion. Um, I guess for the basics, for anybody who's listening, I'd say the basic idea is the Supreme Court upheld um, vaccine or testing requirements for healthcare workers 
as imposed by the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services and the Department of HHS and any of their underlying agencies. However, the Supreme Court turned down the OSHA rulings requiring testing or um, vaccination in workplaces for employers that had 100 employees or more. And the opinion is full of so many interesting tidbits. Um, but I think at the heart of it, what we learn is, and at least when it comes to me advising clients here in the future is, you know, the Supreme Court just said the government can't tell you to do this. It didn't say that an employer can't decide to impose these requirements themselves. It didn't say that state governments wouldn't be able to do it. In fact, it kind of hinted, um, at least um, in Justice Gorsuch's um, concurrence, it, it kind of hinted to the idea that, you know, the states might be the more proper um, avenue to create these rulings or Congress themselves, if they really think this pandemic um, requires such regulation, it needs to issue um, some rules. And so I think it leaves us open for the rest of 2022 to see exactly what happens um, as a result. So, as, so gosh, it just tells me then the story is not done, right? That there's still a lot more to come, it sounds like. And in fact, could almost be more challenging and or convoluted, particularly if a, a, an entity is in multiple states, if it truly comes down at, at the state level. Oh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, how California decides to take care of this issue is, could be fundamentally different than how Texas decides to take care of the issue. Um, and I think that just ends up um, maybe encouraging Congress to act as, um, as the Supreme Court has now requested. Um, and I think at the same time, you know, a lot of this is layered in politics. And so to in, in avoidance of any of the political ideals that are associated with it, I would just say, if I'm talking to a client, um, obviously clients in the healthcare space, it's very easy to say, hey, you know, these rules are in place. You receive federal financial assistance, you are regulated and you must comply with the CMS orders. However, for general employers, who you are worried about the health and safety of their workforce, I say, analyze where you are, right? Um, in situations where you already are dealing with large numbers of employees getting sick or being out due to the pandemic, uh, perhaps you do want to consider some internal policies. Um, but remember that when you implement policies, there are going to be people who feel a certain way about it. And it's just about learning how to curb expectations when you're individually implementing them. It's a lot easier for employers to just say, the law says I have to do this. Right. Um, but when we leave them to their own devices, it's far easier to be facing a lawsuit from an employee who's not happy about something that they're being told to do. So just watch out, know your workforce for sure. That makes sense. So I know um, Medicare and Medicaid participation are key for so many in the healthcare space. What happens if they don't effectively roll out that mandate with their workforce or they don't enforce it? I actually have not read enough to know exactly what the implications are, but I will say in general, at least in my experience working with Medicare and Medicaid, it's usually if you fail to 
implement a rule or regulation, then you can be subjected to either, you know, termination of your agreement, or you can be subjected to possible overpayments that need to be repaid back to the agency. So, you know, um, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if the law says you have to do it, implement it immediately, because there could be either financial or just um, practical um, effects. Right. And I have to think, you know, looking at some of their other programs, many of their other programs, it's not usually a, a death sentence day one, right? That if they find an issue, hopefully they would be working through. I know that we need, um, we have such a drastic need for healthcare providers out there. Hopefully they would also work with an organization to help them become compliant if they're not just thinking out loud. Right. Yeah. And so a lot, there is a little bit of a rollout um, allowance because also the government itself needs to get ready to regulate. And this was all kind of issued under this emergency temporary standard. And so um, I think that's exactly right. You know, if you don't already have the resources in place to implement these policies or procedures, then, you know, there are plenty of companies that ex like exist to help you do risk assessments, to help you, um, you know, analyze and understand how to transform your workplace to be compliant. A lot going on in that regard. Um, any other key thoughts related to the vaccine mandate? You had a lot of other topics in, in the article that I wanted to, to probe on a little bit. Yeah, I definitely think that the biggest takeaway that I would want any of my clients to know um, from the Supreme Court opinion is that um, things are going to continue to move at this pace. Um, if the court indicated anything, in my opinion, it's that um, as the pandemic continues and as we evolve, um, just like the CDC guidelines change every five seconds, um, we just need to be ready and kind of keep our heads on the swivel and, and know that once something changes, it's time to adapt. Um, the court in no way said that vaccine mandates will never be okay. Um, but they also didn't say vaccine mandates are awful. Um, and, and because of that, we need to understand that it's always possible that in this year, something new can happen. We could be having this conversation this time next year and everybody could like be required to have a vaccine. I don't know. So right. it'll be interesting. To watch and see where it comes. Well, you referenced how um, the CDC guidance was changing, which kind of leads to me in, in your second topic, which was COVID-19 exposure liability, um, where employers were, you know, you might be compliant today, the rules might change tomorrow, and then you have to pivot. So what were some of your thoughts or your key takeaways on the, the COVID-19 exposure liability for, for employers? Right. So I think this is one of those issues that is not going to be as big of an issue um, as we continue along in the, um, in the pandemic, the idea was that sometimes people would go to work, they would contract COVID-19 and they bring it home to their loved ones. And then our loved ones would want to sue employers based on the exposure that they received from the employee, um, based on the employer's failure to um, make the workplace safe. And some states are actually actively um, dealing with this issue, right? So you see New York and New Jersey having the most of these cases um, last year. Um, I think the thought process that I have when it comes to exposure liability is that um, 
one, it's dependent on what state you're in. Here in Alabama, um, a lot of, uh, I would say, you could almost be contributorily negligent if you choose to expose yourself to someone who exposes themselves every day to COVID-19, right? And so being in a contributory negligent state, I don't see how any exposure liability um, claim could ever really work. Um, but on the flip side, I also see how what employers need to be looking at in these situations is making sure they have the policies and procedures in place to protect themselves on the front end. So if you have, if you're in a situation where your employees are constantly um, in close proximity to each other and um, you have a mask mandate, I think you're a lot less likely to uh, be um, subjected to some sort of lawsuit based on exposure liability. Um, to the same point, maybe you don't have a mask mandate and you have suggested mask protocol for anybody who's not vaccinated, or you have um, required um, quarantine procedures for anybody who is exposed. As soon as you insulate yourself from um, the virus in any way through a policy or procedure, I think exposure liability kind of goes away a little bit because it proves that you work to make sure the, the workplace is um, somewhat healthy. And this, once again, just takes us all back to the Supreme Court and their OSHA ruling and why right, right. it probably would make sense for somebody to come in and um, mandate everything for us. But um, we will continue to find out. So it sounds like if we take what sound like common sense measures, but you're not expected, an employer's not expected to bring risk down to zero, but but to be, you know, considerate, prudent in the environment and, and modify as needed. Right. I would say the only employers that probably are required to, to be um, more proactive are the healthcare employers, right? So yeah, in the hospital system, I, I think that uh, anybody who's not protecting their workforce is, is going to be in a problematic situation. Challenges. Um, but I think you're right to say in general workforces, um, here in my law firm, for example, there, there's no incentive to, to be that proactive. You just need to have the right policies and procedures in place. So shifting gears a little bit, I know staffing shortages, particularly in the healthcare space, are everywhere. Um, the great resignation that we've all heard about burnout related to COVID. And I know that creates a lot of operational challenges. I knew and, and kind of thought through maybe some HR challenges from a recruiting and retention perspective, but you also identified some exposure from a legal perspective. Tell me a little bit about what you were thinking there. Well, I think I always advise um, my clients to realize that the health of their workforce is not just the physical health of their workforce, right? It's the mental health. So the second you start having um, a workforce that continues to shrink, you have employees that are upset. You have employees who don't want to be at work and they start to find more problems with the workplace. And those gripes continue to become more and more HR headaches in a plethora of ways. And I think in the article I discussed about how um, there's such a shortage on nurses that there's a belief that in the near future, we will not have enough nurses in our country. That alone is terrifying because if you can't staff adequately as required by federal or state law and you're a healthcare provider, you're going to be in trouble. 
Um, if you, you know, a lot of us kind of think of, you know, how many hours is a nurse in an emergency room allowed to work? Well, if you've only got three nurses on staff now um, and the law hasn't changed, what do you do to be compliant? Um, that'll also start driving up costs. I mean, the shortage on nurses means that you as an employer might end up having to pay a little bit more cash um, in the form of salary and fringe benefits. And, and those things can be extremely concerning to an already devastated healthcare system, as well as an already devastated economy. Yeah, we definitely are seeing that with clients where, you know, margins were already razor thin and now staffing costs, not just clinical staff, but across the board, but definitely in frontline clinical staff, the, the increase in costs just to retain employees is, is skyrocketing, for lack of a better word. What, what makes this kind of special is it, it's partially that great resignation we, you were just talking about, but then there's also like the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of our healthcare workers just also died or caught the virus. And so we didn't have um, the natural turnover that we're used to, right? I, I mean, you'll see this going back to nursing schools and medical schools probably for at least another decade, the amount of people um, that need to be funneled in is going to be dramatic. And so I think you're right to say that, you know, this was kind of unpredictable. Um, Well, your reference to, you know, the estimate by 2030 that there will be a global shortfall of 10 million nurses, of more than 10 million nurses, if that's not eye-opening, I don't know what is. I know, and I think that we talked about um, the other day, you know, the kind of rise in travel nursing and the practice of medicine between the states and among state lines. Um, If I'm an employer and I know it's already hard to keep nurses, Travel nurses get paid so well, uh, there's more of an incentive to go out and become a travel nurse than there is to work inside a hospital system or a health system of any sort. Um, what do you, how are you retaining the workforce at that point? If people mm-hmm. are able to now, in such a transient world, right. um, do their job in other ways. And so it'll definitely be one of those things that, um, healthcare employees are going to have to really think about. Yeah, I think, you know, I've always said healthcare is not for the faint of heart and that that piece continues just with some new, maybe not new layers, but exacerbated layers, um, I think, and and just seems to be magnified. One uh, last topic that you had in your article, and and we we can't leave a compliance oriented conversation without talking about whistleblowers. And a lot of times we think about it in, um, and, and fraud, waste, and abuse, and, and that regulatory environment. But obviously, there are whistleblower, you know, scenarios in employment law. What are some things you are thinking about and advising clients on related to that? Yeah, it's so weird, but COVID nineteen once again has <laughs> plagued this issue. We're seeing a rise in cases where employers are for lack of a better term, discriminating against employees based on their feelings related to the pandemic. So, you know, what do you do when an employee, you know, complains about the fact that your workplace is not adequately sanitized or um, people aren't following the mask mandate that you implement and someone um, is a whistleblower and speaks out on it? 
um, usually retaliatory conduct is not protect is not protected um, when you're dealing with certain types of discrimination, right? Um, the easiest way to explain that is, you know, if, if an employer fires me because I'm pregnant, um, that runs um, afoul of the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, or because I'm African American, um, that runs afoul of many employment <laughs> discrimination laws. Um, well, here there's not some overarching law protecting an employee who is vocal about um, the lack of health and safety in the workplace. And so um, some states, I think it was New York, I can't actually remember, we've, we've talked so much and so many things have changed. Um, New York was kind of the first um, state to really consider how whistleblowers are being impacted. And I think that was because of how New York ended up decimated by the pandemic the quickest. Um, so it was really easy for somebody in, in the middle of, you know, 2020 to say, oh, no, I'm not coming in. You guys have not figured out what you're doing. The pandemic is killing our whole city. Um, what, are, what I'm not doing that. And then the employer fires them. And so as a, as a result, um, and especially with like lower, the shortage of people, PPE in the beginning of the pandemic, all of that kind of just created this big issue that was ready to explode. So as a result, at least in New York and a few other states, we're seeing the state legislators start to create protections for whistleblowers when it comes to health and safety measures um, being reported. But until that is resolved for everyone, um, it's best for, you know, I would say your HR um, departments to start to implement like, you know, suggestion boxes or places for their comments and concerns to be um, taken um, anonymously, just so um, you don't face any litigation. In the any, any surprises there? Yeah. I know when we do compliance program reviews, we are looking for communication avenues. You know, one of the seven elements of, a, of an effective compliance program are for employees to raise concerns and in a non-retaliatory manner. And I think this is just one other area for organizations to think about when they're thinking about that retaliation and maybe some workforce education along the way, because it, to your point, HR may be thinking about it, but if it's not disseminated out and the, and the supervisory staff are not educated on it, they may be making employment actions that are on this basis that may put the organization at risk without even engaging HR, you know, at that point. 100%. I think um, it's it's always kind of funny when I'm talking to clients and I'm like, I know this person was a pain in your butt, <laughs> but <laughs> you can't just outright get rid of them, right? And um, in, in this context specifically, since everything is so unsettled, I think it's very important to educate everyone from the bottom up on, right. you know, how these changes are happening. Very good. Well, any other key takeaways or items that, you know, were kind of top of mind for you as you wrote the article and, and share it with our colleagues that we didn't cover? No, I think we actually touched on everything that we talked about in the article. I think 2022 is going to be a very interesting year for employment law and healthcare and the, the mix of the two. I hope by this time next year, we've got a real answer on vaccine mandates. Um, <laughs> 
we need to come back together and have a retrospective review to see what came to be. But I, what I'm hearing loud and clear is the story is not done. There is more to come. Exactly. Definitely. I, I look forward to having that conversation in the future. I do too. Well, I've had fun and enjoyed uh, chatting with you on these topics and hopefully get the opportunity to do so again. And uh, hopefully this has been beneficial to our colleagues and listeners out there. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.